Five minutes to firing. Five minutes. They'll either be on their way to the moon or blown to pieces. Ten seconds to go. Five, four, three, two, one, fire! That's a scene from a 1976 animated version of From the Earth to the Moon, a classic science fiction tale that was written by Jules Verne around the time of the American Civil War. The story had an impact that went far beyond cartoon shows. In a book called From the Earth to Mars, commercial space pioneer Jeffrey Manber shows how Jules Verne's novel set off a chain of events that is leading us toward a revolution in space travel. And there are even cartoons. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and Jeffrey Manber as we talk about the connections between science fiction and real-life space innovations, and as we look ahead to the next giant leaps from the Earth to the Moon and Mars. Jeffrey Manber's space industry resume goes back decades and includes efforts to commercialize Russia's Mir space station in the 1990s, as well as an unsuccessful bid to send boy band singer Lance Bass to the International Space Station in 2002. Manber had much more success with the company called Nanorax, which blazed a trail for nanosatellite deployment from the International Space Station and other spacecraft. Today, Nanorax and its parent company, Voyager Space, are heavily involved in a commercial space station project called Starlab, which suggests that Manber's career is coming full circle. Manber plans to tell that story in From the Earth to Mars, a series of illustrated books about the historical roots of the commercial space revolution. The saga starts with Jules Verne in the 1860s and continues with an interplay of science fiction and fact in the early 1900s. The first book in the series sets the scene with German and Russian rocketeers playing the leading roles. Future books will bring America, China, and other players into the picture. My conversation with Jeffrey touched on space history, as well as the current state of the space industry, and where he thinks we'll be going in the decades to come. So strap yourselves in for one heck of a ride. I started out by asking how From the Earth to Mars got its start. The book has taken me about three years to put together, and it's developed for two reasons, I'd say. The first is I I strongly believe we need to understand our uh, first baby steps in space exploration. We need to know where we come from. And, you know, for some of us in the community, space exploration begins with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. For some of us in the community, it begins with Apollo. But both of those have a theme, and that is the government-controlled space program and the reaction against it. And I discovered during the the pandemic that, you know, the first steps we took in what was called rocket travel and rocket development were commercial. And, And you know what? We were supposed to be commercial and we were going to be another marketplace like aviation. And I began to think about it. And now that I'm of an older age and having been in this industry for decades, I realized I wanted to create a product that allowed the newcomers and others to understand our roots. And so that's the origin of From the Earth to Mars. And we can get into what it's what it's about. Uh, and that dictated the graphic novel and other decisions. Um, so um, in one sense, it's a deviation. I've been a space business person for four decades now. But in the other, it's not. It's one more tool in my arsenal of propaganda to show people that commercial is the right pathway to go. 
The title of your book echoes the title of Jules Verne's novel, From the Earth to the Moon. And as you point out, that novel blazed a fictional trail for the early rocketeers and envisioned space travel as a private enterprise rather than a government project. And I was really interested to read your view of how the course of space exploration and settlement might have been different if governments hadn't gotten involved. Can you go through a synopsis of that? You kind of asked two questions, which will take a few moments to answer. The first question is the fundamental anchor of From the Earth to Mars, the first two episodes, one and two, is that it was really Jules Verne, a French writer writing during the American Civil War, who had a story about three men blasting off to go uh, to the moon, blasting off from the coast of Florida, and other interesting, eerie similarities that took place a uh, hundred years later. But what was interesting about Jules Verne, and one of the rules I have in writing this book, is for me, the important people are not the better known. They're not the people we know. They're the people for whom there is the unbroken connection from when they contributed until today. If there's a line that connects somebody, then I put it in the book. If there's a line that doesn't, for example, H.G. Wells. Okay, H.G. Wells um, wrote his book, I think it's uh, First Man in the Moon, uh, 1901. Most of, uh, you know, a lot of people know it. There's no line from H.G. Wells to today's space people. Okay, it was a book. It was popular. It did not influence. There was no ripple effect. Jules Verne, when I look into uh, From the Earth to the Moon, I find out that Tchaikovsky, Konstantin Tchaikovsky, the great Russian philosopher who sitting there as a school teacher in a small town in Russia, he reads the book and he says, is it possible to have a ship go to the moon from a cannon? And he does the calculations that become known as the Tchaikovsky equations, rocket equations. And for the not for the first time, there was a British person who may have come up with it sooner. But again, the one with the most influence was Tchaikovsky. And he comes up with the rocket equation that shows you could not launch humans from a cannon. They'd be flattened like a pancake with the necessary gravity forces. And he postulates, therefore, that you need a three-stage rocket and go on, go on, go on. So because of Jules Verne, we get the first thinking about three-stage rocket. Because of Jules Verne, we get the German, Romanian, Hermann Ober. Because of Jules Verne from the Earth to the Moon, uh, a very important Russian, Glushko, uh, Valentin Glushko, uh, who was their rocket designer uh, for decades. He memorized, he said, passages of from uh, the Earth to the Moon. So the first part of your question is, yes, the book opens with the premise that the, the, the first realistic steps taken in rocket development were because of a French science fiction uh, book. So, and that's an underlying theme in that we really needed a commercial ecosystem to get going. It was not a government decree. The second part of your question is uh, on commercial. I began to think about it, Alan, and this is the way I, I thought, and you can, you know, knock me down. I thought how in the 1910s and the 1920s, the period we're talking about, you had a a series of frontier markets. They were radio, long distance telephone communication, automobile, aviation, and rocket travel. Let's jump 100 years later. What are our, our frontier markets today? Uh, We have artificial intelligence, genetic splicing, internet, rocket travel. Why is it that of all of them, 100 years later, one of them is still a frontier market? And the answer to me is because in 19, uh, roughly 1910, when the 1903, whatever it was, when the Wright brothers flew, No government officials came in and said, "Okay, we're shutting this down. You now work for us. You can no longer publish. Um, They didn't do that to Henry Ford. They didn't say, "Okay, this is now only for strategic military purposes. No, in both cases, they allowed international dissemination of technology. Government as customer, 
All those things we're grappling with 70, 80 years later. But with space, because it wasn't in America, we can touch on that, in 1920, um, it was in Germany and it was in Russia. And what did they do? In Germany, they went to the young man, Werner von Braun, and said, your PhD is now classified. Uh, they shut down all the efforts of commercial in Russia. First, they made they, they nationalized everything and then they, they put them in the gulag. And so you have, in my view, you have this, this uh, uh, ex- exception for uh, rocket travel that because we became under the control of the government, it took us decades to emerge. Final thing, and then uh, I yield the floor, Mr. Chairman. But <laughs> final, final thing is people say to me, they listen, I'm just going to spare you from saying this. They say, well, maybe rocket travel and space exploration is different because it's so expensive. To which one replies, maybe it's so expensive because it was under government control for 70 years. So that's my answer to your question. And so, again, how might things have been different if the government didn't get involved? And I guess the mainstream answer would be, oh, well, we wouldn't be as far advanced because we don't have all that government support. But your answer is we might be farther along than we are. Look, I believe in public-private partnerships. It's the American way that we do things. Okay, why? Do, okay, I think you are and I am old enough to remember air stamps. Okay, I think air, yeah, air stamps, right? That's airmail, yeah. Airmail. Okay, what is that for half the audience? Okay, for half the audience, airmail was I could mail a stamp for, let's say, using today's money, I could mail a stamp for 30 cents. Uh, and it would get to uh, my electric company and pay my bill. But maybe I was sending something to California and I wanted to get there faster. I'd pay a buck 40 and it would have a picture of a plane and it was airmail. It wasn't necessary. Why did Congress do it? To support the development of commercial aviation. You know, people say to me, oh, you know, commercial couldn't make it on its own. No market can make it on its own when it's a frontier and emerging. None, none, none. Okay, so so let me go back a little bit and say when Hermann Oberth, the German-Romanian, wrote his famous book, um, he was his Ph.D., as I detail in the book, his uh, Ph.D. was rejected by the university and his wife suggested he self-published, which was very unusual in those days. And he published this uh, very technical treatise, and it became a bestseller in Germany in the 1920s. You know, how weird is that? But in his book, he postulates, he has a business plan in there. And he says, we can probably make some money from uh, uh, communication with these orbiting things. He may have had a geostationary, I I, I think, I, I don't remember right now. And we can make money from these orbiting, they didn't call them space stations, but orbiting manned uh, platforms, and we can make money from cargo. We probably can't make money from human travel, but it's so important and symbolical and cool, we should do it. I mean, so the assumption was that it would be commercial. And in fact, Jules Verne, from the Earth to the Moon, the whole thing, the mission that's launched three astronauts from the coast of Florida, they crowdsource. And and the money comes in from all over the world. He says even the Russians put in because they like they like space so much. And and uh, and then he says, but the Brits they didn't put in. I mean, you know, so it, it was it was eerie. It's very eerie. So my answer is that had it been developing in America, or had it had more time before the the, the shadows of World War II began to come, you would have had private capital. You would have had governments as customer. You would have had maybe the government saying, hey, make us this rocket, as they did with the Soviets, make this rocket really heavy because we need it for a thermonuclear bomb. But then Karloff, the great designer in the Soviet Union, might have been able to design smaller rockets that that, uh, did not have to carry a thermonuclear bomb. But I'll give you one concrete example of how things would have been faster with commercial. I was struck by this one moment, Alan, in the 1940s. World War II ends. We get in there and we look at the V-2 rocket. Germany had used an offensive weapon. And everybody in the nascent space community, like Arthur C. Clarke, the British science fiction and futurist, 
began to assume that by the end of the 40s, we'd have humans in space, because we'll just take a heavy V2, develop a V2, make it heavier, which von Braun was working on, and we put a human on it. Um, Arthur C. Clarke assumed that we'd have um, satellites in a network for instantaneous communication. He got some things wrong. He had some of them uh, uh, geostationary and, and things like that. But my point is, had this been a commercial market, after World War II, Boeing went ahead with its, I think, 707. They took everything that happened in the development during the war with the military planes, and they were allowed to then take that investment and that knowledge and develop it for a civilian market. We were not. We of the space community were not. Had we been allowed, the first human crewed vehicles would have been V2s. We would have had humans in space in the 1940s, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's an unknown. I admit it's an unknown, but I've spent my career seeing the value of commercial, the public-private partnership. I can see instances in the 20th century where we could have done it. And that's what I wanted to make clear in episodes one and two. And I'm going to make clear throughout. The, I'm going to keep going on this is that commercial was in a box. And finally, uh, because of the efforts of people, you know, we know people like myself and others, we got the capitalism out of the box. And you see the result today. In the book, you talk about how we might have multiple space stations. We might be on our way to Mars, perhaps, by now, if we hadn't had that little episode of government being in the front seat for driving the and, space revolution. And one, of, and one of the problems of the government uh, being in the, in the pilot seat, okay, is the lack of international participation. One of the things when I made the decision to, to spend a couple of years writing this, I was stunned by the international cooperation that existed in 1920, 1925. Here you are emerging from the horror of what they called the Great War, horrific war, okay? And there you have uh, Germans uh, developing the first uh, rockets, writing letters to their colleagues in Russia, to Tchaikovsky and others. There's a World's Fair of Space. This is so cool. There's a World's Fair of Space in 1927 in Moscow. Who knew? Okay. And so 1927, you have a World's Fair on Space, and they have the hardware from Brits, hard, which wasn't, it was even less real than the others, but they have the hardware from uh, uh, Germany, from Romania. They even had Goddard. The guy who supposedly didn't speak to anybody, he's writing letters. They have his hardware. There is this international. And what market doesn't develop, whether aviation, cars, um, you name it, genetics, uh, internet, you need the international. You need the flow of capital. So we were on our way to being an international marketplace. And then because the two places that had the most maturity, Germany and Russia, the government came in and nationalized, socialized it, and that was the end. So we're talking about the late 1920s, and, and I was particularly intrigued uh, by your discussion about uh, this 1929 movie, The Woman in the Moon. The filmmaker Fritz Lang and, and Hermann Olbert uh, tried to incorporate some real-life rocketry into the making of that movie, and those efforts might have inspired the Nazi V2 rocket project that came afterward. So was that a tipping point in the shift from the private sector to the public sector? This is real interesting. Uh, the more I dug into it, it seemed to me, as you're saying, Alan, that one of the key turning points was when the great director, still studied today, Fritz Lang, director of Metropolis, which is a weird friggin' silent movie where he has the extraordinary idea that that um, uh, there's income inequality and uh, people in cities are treated poorly. And I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a unfortunately a very accurate film. And um, he his wife. Thea von Haber, uh, his wife was a very well-known writer, and she took an interest in rocket travel. She wrote a book, um, several hundred pages long, called The Woman in the Moon. She used Herman Oberth and a gentleman named Willie Lay, and he then was instrumental 
He was a young man there in his 20s, college dropout also, had a best-selling book in Germany and rocket travel. And he later in the 50s worked with Von Braun and Disney and helped uh, first in Germany and then in America to popularize uh, space travel. And so she got to know Willie and she got to know Herman Oberth. And she wrote her own book and her husband said, I'm going to do a movie. The movie was with Universal Films, and they grew apparently a very well-known German um, uh, uh, movie out, the studio. And they agreed not only to do the film, but they agreed that there would be a rocket launch tied to it. So it's like in today's language, get the band together. We got we got the money, get the band together. And they all got together. Herman Oberth, Willie, um, the rocket designers, Von Braun, they all got together and they developed this rocket. Newsflash, plot spoiler, they didn't make it. Almost bankrupt uh, Herman Oberth because he was uh, liable for certain bills. He escapes Berlin and goes to back home to Romania to teach at a high school. He's he's mentally depressed. Years later, doesn't want to talk about that incident. Um, but the film, I urge everybody listening here to watch like one hour into the film. It's one hour of love and and this and 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 um it's a very realistic plot. It's a it's a plot about uh, uh getting materials from the lunar surface. But my lord, in the film, the vehicle looks like the V2, as you say. There's another rocket that looks like the shuttle. Fritz Lang invents the countdown. I have a cartoon in the book that shows Fritz Lang talking to Herman Oberth and saying, how do you uh, know when you launch? He goes, well, we're just ready. We press the button. And Fritz Lang says, that's not dramatic. And so he invents the countdown. Um, they have straps in the uh, for your feet to hold you in the weightlessness. Um, they have orbital trajectory equations on the silent film. They introduced the concept of a cargo ship going first, and then the human-rated ship goes, which, unfortunately, the Russians learned much earlier than us, okay, the, the importance of having cargo and then human uh, crew. And so the film was a, a complete commercial success. Um, the opening night was, uh, the you know, the best thing that happened, I think, was 1929. Herman Oberth returns. He can't stay away. He watches the whole thing. And then when the movie's over, they pick up the pieces, the rocket community, and they take this and they take that because the movie studio doesn't care. And that's really the origin of a practical, uh, you can trace that. Again, very important to me. You can trace the connection. You can trace from that movie the uh, um, budget to, to have a, a rocket that goes with the, with the film, unsuccessful. They get together and you can trace that to the V2. Yeah, I did watch parts of that movie, uh, and, and you're right that you have to get an hour into it to get to the good stuff that stands that yeah. stands up as well today as as it did back then. There, yeah. There's a lot of other stuff going on. You can watch the whole. I think it's almost a three hour long movie. So I was you, stunned to see how long it is. I was <laughs> I was really stunned. So. But um, we'll, so we'll link to that and, and uh, people who are listening to this can head on over and uh, we'll show you where the good part is. No worries yeah, about exactly. that. I understand that From the Earth to Mars is a work in progress and you haven't published the sections relating to the V2 and everything that follows. But can you provide a preview? How, how do we get from then to now? Uh, episodes one and two, the ones uh, that were just published, um, they're um, Time of Optimism. Um, they're a time of um, unlimited opportunities. People, I mean, imagine living 1910, 1920, the, oh, let's say 1920, the war is over and your people, humans are finally flying through the clouds. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, uh, all these things you, you can, you can expensive, but you can pick up the phone, get the operator and talk to somebody from New York to Los Angeles. There was something like 20 calls a day in the mid twenties between New York and London. I mean, and you couldn't do Chicago to London. It was it was New York to London, New York to Paris. But what a time of optimism. Okay, what a time of belief in technology. And so episodes one and two, I wanted to highlight the optimism and confidence that was felt. I'm doing episodes three and four now for the first rockets. And it's a depressing time. But this is our history. 
Episode three is on the um, the first rockets to develop in the Soviet Union. And it's a it's a very depressing story. I mean, you had Russia with first the revolution, the civil war, the great famine, um, thousands are dying, thousands uh, um, are in jail. Um, and, and somehow they put together the first rockets and then they end up in the gulag. And I hope that will be out by the end of the year. Episode three, and then episode four will be on the development of V2, and that's a sad story, okay, with Nazi fascism and the concentration camps. I mean, if you go and look at the cover of uh, From the Earth to Mars, episodes one and two, it's a nice cartoon, it's red. I'm thinking, don't hold me to this, but episode three and four, I might do black and white. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not a nice time. Okay, and so, um, but again, I want people to know what our roots are. How many episodes do you envision taking to tell the whole story? Well, the title's From the Earth to Mars, so we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens. I want to do one on the after I do the first rockets in Russia and Germany. I want to do, I start doing them in doubles. I'll do like maybe episode uh, five and six will be China and America a little more. I'm telling friends and they think I'm foolish. I say the whole 60s is boring to me. Apollo, it's just, I mean, for it's been told, it's been told, it's been told. I'll see if there's something unique there. So there's a chance I'll go from the story of China and the origins and then America and how we got going and go straight to my love, of course, commercial space. I want to tell the story of um, how commercial space took root in the United States and um, and uh, I mean, I can't believe it, but I was pretty much there, I, you know, with the with um, the beginnings of commercial space with um, Deke Slayton and the Conestoga launching off the coast of Texas. And and so I want to I want to tell the story and then we'll see. Yeah. But I will say one of the things I'm doing is right now I'm involved with a gentleman named Tim Smith. Um, who's written a very no, well-known Bible called Graphic Novels in the Classroom. And uh, I've commissioned Tim to write a curriculum. And my point is, I want this to go into the schools. Uh, I'm one of the founders of a uh, subsidiary of uh, my company, previous company, Nanorax, uh, called Dream Up. And Dream Up is an educational company. Uh, we, do, we do a lot. I guess I'm I'm still on the board of Dream Up, and uh, we do a lot with um, uh, students going to the International Space Station. And from that, I've learned the importance of having curriculum so the teachers know what to teach. And so uh, Tim is putting together curriculum, and I'm hopeful that, as I said, it's my one of my latest tools uh, for propaganda and commercial to get it into the school system. Man, oh man, you have a lot of irons in the fire. Uh, you've mentioned NanoRacks, and there's Voyager Space and Star Lab. In the past, we've talked about concepts including orbital outposts and putting people into space for reality TV shows, other opportunities on the space frontier. So what is keeping you busy these days aside from writing from the Earth to Mars? Well, to speak the parlance for which I don't belong, but the parlance is I had a successful exit with Nanorax. I was fortunate enough um, to co-found Nanorax about 12 years ago, 13. Um, and I grew it, employee number one, CEO. I grew it into the largest commercial user of the International Space Station. Um, for those of your listeners who don't know, when we started Nanorax, there was no company in the world that owned, operated, and marketed its own hardware in Leo. And so we were the first company to own our own hardware on the International Space Station. And we started with small labs and uh, in the CubeSat uh, form function. And then we had an external platform and then we grew to the airlock and we did CubeSat deployments. And I like to think, and as does Planet, that we helped create the CubeSat revolution. We launched the first satellites of Planet Labs, of um, Spire, of GOMSpace. So Nanorax holds a special place in showing the services um, that were possible commercially in LEO. And I, about two years ago, I felt I had reached the end of my um, expertise and to go to the next level. Um, I was able, and I'm delighted to have sold it to a friend, Dylan Taylor, who's very well known as a major personal investor. And um, and he, uh, along with another co-founder, Matt Kuta, uh, founded Voyager Space. 
And um, Dylan asked me to stay on for a few years. I'm president of International. And I'm doing what I love now, Alan. I'm doing international. So, you know, we won uh, the largest contract from NASA to do a commercial space station, Starlab. We received the most funding. I'm very proud of that. It was begun under Nanoracks and and uh, now uh, under the able leadership of Voyager. They know all sorts of financial things I don't. And, and um, we have incredible financial uh, expertise and partners. We've announced a relationship with Airbus. We've rela- announced an MOU with the Canadian Space Agency. And we're moving now. And we're, and most importantly to me, um, as you say, what keeps me up in a good way at night is um, I'm helping to create a pipeline that's not dependent of customers, not dependent on uh, the space agencies. We need them for the astronauts. But for the research, we're turning to science parks and other non-aerospace organizations. So I'm having a great time as we're getting preciously close to my dream of having, you know, we see what happened 12 years ago, 15 years ago with private transportation. I could not have been more embarrassed that this great nation was single point dependent on taking humans to space and cargo into a vehicle that was that was always um, experimental almost, I'd say, about the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And 12, 15 years after commercial was introduced with NASA as a customer, no one, you don't know, Alan, I don't know, Jeff Bezos doesn't know, Elon doesn't know how many rocket companies there are in the world. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Okay. There's all sorts. There's, there's a sea launches happening commercially. There's, there's, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's exploded. And that's what happens with uh, commercial markets. And now my dream has always been to have that with the destination and we're getting close. So it's cool. Why should I leave? You? A couple of decades ago, we connected with each other quite a bit over the prospects of doing commercial ventures on Russia's Mir space station, including the idea of sending NSYNC singer Lance Bass into orbit for a reality TV project. And now we have a Russian movie that incorporates scenes filmed on the International Space Station. And there's talk about other film and TV projects going into space, maybe even Tom Cruise. Uh, What are you hearing from that quarter? And do you feel as if the company that you were with, Mircorp, was a great idea that was just ahead of its time? Yes. Okay, so um, there was one moment when I turned to the lead investor, uh, Walt Anderson, and I was debating whether to join uh, to uh, lease the Russian space station Mir. And because the plans were by the Russian government to deorbit it, but they had privatized it and turned it over to a private company, Energia, which is still the prime on the International Space Station. And I was debating whether to take the leap and uh, head up the Dutch company, Mircor, to run this. And I looked at the chief lead investor and I said, I don't think you'll make it commercially, but I think what we do will be extremely important. Do you agree with that assessment or are you in it only for the return? And I remember he put his head down. We were at lunch. He put his head down. He said, no, it's more than the investment. I said, "Okay, then I'll join. Okay." And so I'm very proud of Mircorp. I think Mircorp is a forgotten, but I'll make sure it doesn't get forgotten always. And historians will make sure it doesn't get forgotten. It was the pivotal point at the right time in 1999 to show that a commercial effort, international, American capital, Dutch company leasing a Russian space station, a small entrepreneurial company could have a relationship with both a prime contractor, Energia, and a space agency at that time called Russian Space Agency. I spoke to Elon at that time. I spoke to Sir Richard Branson. Um, It was a pivotal example. We were successful in the marketplace. I had 179 million in backlog. When it was forced down, deorbited, um, we fixed it up. We put about 20, 30 million into it. We had, as you said, Mark Burnett and NBC to do a game show where the winner would go to space. We had Dennis Tito to fly before he went to the ISS. Uh, we had an agency I've never revealed who said, if you last a few missions, uh, we'll, um, we'll join. Um, we had um, the Murdoch family, not Fox. We had the Murdoch family interested in doing entertainment and weather, um, and and we had a good, vibrant research program. We conducted the first commercial crew, okay, Uh, as two um, cosmos went up, paid by uh, Mircor. So I guess to answer your question, yeah, I feel good about it. 
I feel good um, that, uh, again, on the continuum, that's what's important to me. Was Mircorp just a cul-de-sac and nothing happened after that? Or was it a ripple, you know, drop the stone in the ripple of life and it goes, it was a, it had the ripple effect from Mircorp. You could see the transition, especially when I returned to the States where we went from that to a few years later to commercial cargo because people like Bill Gerstenmaier, they were in Russia too, uh, until recently, he's now at SpaceX, he's head of human spaceflight. He was at NASA working the control room uh, in soup in, in Russia. And and we used to argue all the time, okay? And, uh, and, and these people began to see there was another way to do uh, uh, human spaceflight. And the Russians, it's so bizarre to me 25 years later, um, the Russians were ahead of us in, in having commercial markets and and al- allowing government as customer. And Mircorp was a very important moment in, in that. I'll leave it there. So based on all that experience, what do you think will come next for the U.S.-Russian relationship in space? And how does that mesh with the rising role for commercial space? What a time, right, Alan? I mean, what a time. Everything I believed in and I believe in has been proven for now to be wrong in the sense of the value of international, the value of sharing supply chains, the value of meshing different cultures and values on pragmatic projects. On the one hand, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, The war in Ukraine certainly showed us the shortcomings. I take solace in two things. One, I certainly was not alone. And I take solace, I was in a meeting at NASA a few months ago, and we were talking about something with the Russians, and someone looked at me and said, Jeff, we just want to be clear. We really appreciate everything you did. We couldn't be here today without the support of the Russians. They helped us after the Columbia tragedy when we were grounded. ISS would not have been built if we did not have another human-rated partner, Uh, and that showed NASA to their core that you never do anything as a one. Two commercial uh, cargo, two commercial crew, uh, human, you know, the human systems just announced, you know, return to the moon, two, um, and and private space stations will be two. But right now, I'm I'm um, very saddened um, by what happens, and I still believe in international. I believe we must not do these efforts, these long-term international important efforts alone. And um, now I'd say it's more important to do it with uh, countries that share our values and and we make sure that, um, you know, it's permanent. I will say that I predicted uh, when the fallout, an appropriate fallout, took place after the invasion by Russia into Ukraine and they, every Russian program was ending with the West, I was publicly saying ISF will continue. And so the positive thing is whether it was a mission to Mars, it would continue. ISS continues. How long the Russians can stay without sanctions, I'm not sure. But I am not surprised that they have continued that program. So based on your study of past history and your experience with the contemporary space effort, do you care to make any predictions about the future of space development? Yeah, but I just realized I didn't answer your question. I spent, you know, three okay, minutes. Okay, yeah, let's 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 do it. Okay, I'll just say because it's 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 dismal. Um, there there can be no Russian American cooperation going forward, uh, and so that's what I meant when I said everything I worked on. You know, you kind of grinds to a halt except for the ISS. So um, I think it's more likely that we could see Chinese uh, American cooperation on the horizon. Um, they have the ascending program, um, not Russia. Gosh, I, I watched the recent launch, three-person uh, three crew arriving at the state, uh, launching to the station, three people waiting for them. Um, what they did on the on the moon, far side of the moon, putting a communication satellite in the Lagrange point, I think it was, uh, very impressive. I mean, very good. Um, and it may be another Apollo-Soyuz moment, not commercial. Um, you know, I did the only commercial Chinese project in the International Space Station. I got permission from the Trump administration and then, oh, first Obama administration to begin it, Trump administration to launch it. And when I went over, to, it was um, a DNA project uh, with Beijing Institute of Technology, synthetic DNA. And they had it was a reflight. So there was no transfer of technology. There was uh, it, it upheld what's called the Wolf Amendment. And we checked with former Chairman Wolf to make sure it upheld his amendment. 
When I went over to China, they said, we believe in commercial for small launch vehicles, for small satellites, for research, anything big strategic for our country. No, we won't do commercial. So I think there's a future probably sooner than we think. Um, you know, I understand very well the tensions in, in the South China Sea, the economic tensions, but there's always that room for that thing called commercial. Elon was just over in China for his gigabattery. Uh, Apple computers are made in China. Again, we treat space exploration differently. We have in aviation, we have in maritime, a civil, a strategic, and a commercial. And I see no reason today, 2023, we should not be doing commercial work in space with the Chinese. I see no reason. So a Chinese space official recently said that they intend to put humans on the moon by 2030. And, and that timing is very interesting with what you're talking about, that it would mesh pretty perfectly with a rapprochement if that's the way things developed. So maybe Yeah, I was, very, I was very disappointed that they went to their own orbit. <clears throat> uh, it's because of, uh, of United States policy. Uh, I, I have stated previously to get into this a little bit in the weeds here on the space station. That's cool stuff. Um, the space station is governed by something called the IGA, Intergovernmental Agency Agreement. I call it the first Magna Carta of space. It's how you, all the nations on ISS um, behave with one another. It's about third-party liability. It's about all sorts of things. It's worked great for 20 years, right? I mean, it's held, you know, it covers a lot of issues. And I've proposed um, publicly that we take the IGA as it, is, as it exists, and as we're looking at the ISS sunsetting, we come up with IGA-2, uh, one that allows China to join the IGA, not our space station. It allows India to join the IGA and private operators of platforms. So you'd have a new, the beginning of cooperation is let's come up with rules of the road, third party liability. Uh, what happens if can you do a cruise, uh, emergency crew rescue? Um, what about orbital debris? Don't blow up satellites in Leo that could knock out the crews on the, on the stations. Let's come up with rules of the road. That's the beginning of uh, the next phase of cooperation. So the book is called From the Earth to Mars. Would you care to make a prediction about when humans will set foot on Mars? Well, I tell people that having spent over 35 years in space, I am a very cautious human being. Okay. I will say that um, despite some of my friends and colleagues in commercial space who were um, who have said that Moore's law has arrived in space, I'm not sure about that, that, uh, you know, keep dividing and just getting quicker each time. My cautious answer will be, I finally believe we will return to the moon and go on to Mars sooner than the pessimists believe. Okay, it's, it's, I mean, I remember the, the shuttle gap. I wasn't in space at the time. But I remember that Skylab, fell. I know that Skylab fell out of the orbit, our first space station, because the shuttle was not there to boost it up. I mean, this is government. This is single point dependency. So we lose a beautiful space station, our America's first space station, because we had no more Apollos and and um, uh, to use. And uh, the shuttle, the truck, space truck was not ready yet in time. Okay, I remember the, the the behavior of the shuttle. I remember the gap between, we all remember the gap between the end of the shuttle and um, uh, now the human crew being back in, on U.S. soil. Um, how long it's been. I remember George Bush announcing our return to the moon. Um, I mean, uh, so uh, to be a veteran in this industry, you have to be very pessimistic. But I believe now with the public-private partnership, I'm not sure the current configuration of NASA for our return to the moon will be the one that gets us back there. There may be some changes, but I believe with commercial in the mix. And let me be more blunt. If if SpaceX can make Starship operational, that is a game changer on everything. In fact, it's so much of a game changer, I have concerns about monopolistic <laughs> behavior. I have, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't fight for 30, 40 years to make this a commercial marketplace with competition to replace one 
uh, single point with another, which would be SpaceX. I like that it's a commercial company. I like the efficiencies. I like um, the dream. I like all that, but I want competition. I want an ecosystem. So uh, Starship is so much a possible game changer from Leo to Mars. It's intoxicating. It's bewildering. And I'll put it to you this way. If he gets Starship going in the next year or two, we're going to Mars sooner than you and I think. The Wright brothers came up with the airplane and and people didn't say, oh, well, okay, it's going to be the Wright brothers all the way. We're not going to have competition. If it's a good idea, other people find a way to adapt it. So there's that. that. And that was the public-private partnership. Um, uh, How many of us realize that United was part of Boeing? Okay, but Congress came in and said, you can't manufacture the planes and sell the tickets. So me being me with my New York sense of humor, about a year ago, I went up to someone at Virgin Galactic and said, hey, when is Congress going to make sure you can't sell the tickets? Because Boeing United. (laughs) And this young person just looks at me. What in God's name are you talking about, Jeffrey? And I said what I just said to you. And the look on her face, I said, look, as you mature, you should not be manufacturing the hardware and selling the ticket. I mean, so United was part of Boeing. So, so um, yes, it's we've been down this path before. Public-private partnerships are important. And Congress has always worked in its own slow and inefficient manner to make sure that there are multiple players in the game. Um, the railroads, the tracks. They made sure to give it out to multiple companies. Uh, The air routes, they didn't have competition on each air route with the early players, with Mr. Northrop and, you know, Mr. Grumman and Mr. Lockheed and Mr. Bo. There's all entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, they're all misters, but they were all entrepreneurs. And what Congress did was they said, okay, Mr. Boeing, this is yours. But you don't get this next route. That goes to Mr. Lockheed or Mr. McDonald or Douglas or whoever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they made sure that there were myriad hardware providers in aviation. Now, over time, we've gotten down to two Airbus and Boeing or the Chinese may be uh, entering soon. Um, And so I'm hopeful that first I'm hopeful that Starship will be operational. And second, that in the great history tradition of this country, we will work to make sure that there's competition. Are there any books or movies today that are as influential or inspiring for the next generation of space trailblazers as Jules Verne was for past generations? Oh, gosh. I, first of all, I can't be the one. I mean, there's some cool books on uh, AI, um, I mean, that have, um, uh, oh, gosh. Martha Wells or something, All Systems Red, was a fascinating book on AI uh, and that relationship between bots and humans is there's a whole generation of writers uh, um, focused uh, starting years ago, meaning 10 years ago, um, on the blurring of the line between the humans and the um I don't know what to call them, the artificial creations. And and will they remain, you know, will our relationship be to them like pets or will we become the pets, you know, or or something? So it's it's hard for me to say today, is there somebody out there inspiring um, the next generation, as uh, Glushko said about Jules Verne? And is that a problem? He- is that a problem that it's hard to name somebody like that? Uh, I know that we've had Star Trek and Star Wars, which they're different. They are more fiction than science. Jules Verne was inspiring the real life science. And maybe you could make the same case in some uh, facets for Star Trek and Star Wars, but maybe they're a little too far out there to serve the same purpose. You raise an interesting point. And, and, and it was my omission. I mean, um, it may not be books. I mean, certainly Star Wars and, and, and some of those movies have absolutely energized. I mean, look at all the names of the vehicles coming out of the new space community. I mean, um, and they're all based and it just shows that they were inspired. And, and so I, I mean, even how do you say cosplay? Co- cosplay? Cosplay. Yeah. 
Okay. I, I mean, I, I admit that I'm not in tune with it that much. And a couple of years ago, I spoke uh, up in Baltimore in front of five to 600 people, which is a large audience for me. And every single person was dressed as Klingons and, and everything. And when I talked about sending, you know, Dennis Tito to space, they were roaring. And, and I mean, so maybe the influence is different today. Maybe it may not be a book. Maybe it will be multimedia, dressing, being part of it, virtual games. Maybe there's uh, some games you and I don't know about on Roblox, okay, that, that you, you know, you're immersed. And that's probably the case. It's probably, you know, I have a 13-year-old and um, uh, there are icons that he uh, uh, seems to, to follow on YouTube and influences and, and in Roblox when he was a year or two younger. So I think the influence continues, but you and I, Alan, do not know what they are. Well, we got to have faith that we'll still be included in the mix there, even though it's up to the next generation. And maybe that's for the best. I'll say um, I just had the honor a couple of weeks ago, NASA gave me the, the uh, Distinguished Public Service Medal. And it's their highest medal they give to non-astronauts. Uh, and and um, I was extraordinarily uh, surprised because the citation mentioned my work with Russia, mentioned helping identify Leo markets. I was a little bit um, uh, dubious. Is this the indication that, okay, Jeff, exit stage left or we're done with you? Or I don't know what when you get something, a recognition like that. But but I, I do think, speaking as the father of a 13-year-old, I do believe that we've done a horrific job of passing the baton to new generations. But in space, I think we're doing much better. I think in space, we have, our, as Americans, we have our act together and, and the right public-private partnerships, the commercial markets. So I can take some solace that in space, uh, what we were handed We've taken it and passing it along in better shape. That's all I can do. Well, may you ever remain on center stage, Jeff. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, good luck to you in the next chapter of your book and in the next chapter of your career. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Thanks to Jeffrey Manber for joining me in a welcome walk down memory lane. Since we're talking about space history here, I can't resist noting that I did my first face-to-face -face interview with Jeffrey in Moscow more than 20 years ago. For more about that backstory and about his illustrated book, From the Earth to Mars, The Surprising History of the Rocket Pioneers Who Launched Humanity into Space, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. Thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.